Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. We've got a jumbo show this week full of commentary on last week's congressional testimony by tech CEOs, including Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, Twitter's Jack Dorsey, and Alphabet's Sundar Pichai. We'll hear from multiple experts who prepared questions, briefed congressional staffers, and produced research that was utilized by lawmakers during the hearing. But to set the stage, let's hear some of the voices of those lawmakers. The power of this technology is awesome and terrifying. And each of you has failed to protect your users and the world from the worst consequence of your creations. But do you know what convinced me big tech is a, a, is a destructive force? It's how you've abused your power to manipulate and harm our children. Your platforms are my biggest fear as a parent. Will you admit today that uh, Facebook groups in particular played a role in the uh, in fomenting the uh, extremism that we saw and that led to the uh, Capitol siege. You definitely give the impression that you don't think that you're actively in any way promoting this misinformation and extremism. And I totally disagree with that. You're not passive bystanders. You're not, you know, nonprofits or religious organizations that are trying to do uh, a you know good job for humanity. You're making money. And the point we're trying to make today, or at least I am, is that when you spread this information, actual misinformation, extremism, act actively promote it and amplify it, you do it because you make more money. And I think that we need to treat symptoms, uh, but I also think that we need to address two underlying diseases. The first is that your products amplify extremism. The second is that your business models of targeted ads enable misinformation to thrive because you chase user engagement at great cost to our society. I want you to all know I was held captive in the gallery during the Capitol insurrection. I was surrounded by domestic terrorists that killed the Capitol police officer, ransacked the Capitol and almost disrupted a presidential election. And many of these domestic terrorists plotted on your platforms. I think we all understand by now this violence is real. And so this is why we're here today in the Committee of Jurisdiction with power to protect our fellow Americans. That was Mike Doyle of Pennsylvania, Kathy McMorris Rogers of Washington State, Jan Schakowsky of Illinois, Frank Pallone of New Jersey, NSU of California, and Darren Soto from Florida. I invited a panel to recap the hearing, each of whom contributed to a set of questions we pulled together in an article on Tech Policy Press that was published jointly with Just Security and shared with congressional representatives in advance of the hearing. I co-wrote that article with Yael Eisenstadt, who's on the panel. Here are my guests. I'm Katie Paul. I'm the director of the Tech Transparency Project, which is a watchdog group project under the Campaign for Accountability. I'm Yael Eisenstadt. I'm a researcher in residence at Beta Lab, which is connected with BetaWorks, and we are helping catalyze startup activity around uh, trying to fix some of the issues that we see coming from the way the internet operates today. I'm also, as of a few days from now, will be a Future of Democracy Fellow at the Berg Ruin Institute. 
Sure. My name is Evan Greer, and I'm the a director of Fight for the Future. We're a nonprofit that works to protect people's basic rights in the digital age, and we fight for technology to be a force for empowerment uh, and uh, liberation rather than a force for greed and exploitation. Great. Um, so, Yael, you've been watching these hearings very closely for the last few years, um, and this, was, of course, is the first hearing that we've had uh, post-Trump, post-January 6th well into the coronavirus pandemic and after all of the, the trouble around disinformation with regard to that crisis. How does this particular hearing in your mind sort of fit in the trajectory of these hearings? And you know, why was it important in that trajectory? Yeah. So, I mean, if we want to take a starting point in the big tech hearing roadshow, I think the 2018 hearing, the Senate hearing of Mark Zuckerberg is probably a good place to start. The one that happened after the Cambridge Analytica scandal and the one with the famous question, how do you make money? And sort of see where we've gone from then, right? Back then it wasn't the most sophisticated hearing. There was a lot of uh, public mocking of some senators that asked questions that didn't really seem to understand the technology um, to where we are now. And I found that yesterday's hearing, really, to me, it was a really big pivot and turning point from what some view as political grandstanding or as some view as, you know, why are people asking questions that don't really lead anywhere to what really seemed to be, first of all, a very serious set of questions about how these platforms and let's be frank, a lot of the focus was on Facebook. I'm sure if you were to count the questions, a large number of them went to Mark Zuckerberg. Um, but really, several areas. How did they affect what were the roles and was there any responsibility for what happened on January 6th? Wasn't the number one topic, but it was one of them. There were some questions around COVID misinformation, also not the top topic. What was really interesting was what I was looking for. I knew that the Democratic side was going to ask probably about January 6th and probably about disinformation and the role behind it. I wasn't sure what was going to happen on the Republican side because in previous hearings, we've heard a lot of, you know, again, political grandstanding, a lot of accusations of anti-conservative bias, a lot of screaming about my own personal Twitter account, you once took something I said down or things like that. And all of a sudden, we had what seemed to be a really coordinated effort on the part of the Republicans to focus on one key topic, and that is how these platforms are affecting children. And the reason I thought that was so interesting was, first and foremost, it is a very strong signal that they are going to start writing and proposing legislation around harms to children. And I have long said in my conversations with staffers and others about tech policy issues, if you can focus your legislation on how it hurts children, that's the legislation that's most likely to pass. So I know Justin, you and I were speaking about this before as well. It is fascinating to me that not just did they focus on real issues, including the business model, which I'm sure we'll get into in this conversation, including really steering away from making it about speech and really steering it towards the business models, the decisions, what they are and are not doing with that speech was a very big shift in a positive direction. And the fact that they really seem to be coordinated. And so high level, I thought it was a really fascinating hearing. I'm one of those nerds who watched every minute of it. 
And I am hopeful that it might actually lead to something. I don't think it's going to lead to the change we all want to see, but I do feel like this is a turning tide. Excellent. Uh, Katie, you were one of the people who had uh, one of those mini sets of questions for, for Mark Zuckerberg in particular. You, you were concerned in particular about some of the kind of criminal activity that we saw on Facebook, uh, particularly on, on the far right. Um, so some of your questions sort of revolved around that. Uh, what did you hear yesterday? Did, were your questions answered? Um, I do think some of the questions were certainly asked by lawmakers, which was great. But anybody who watched the hearing would say those questions definitely were not answered or the answers were talk arounds, deflections, dodges. And that's something that I think we've come to expect from some of these big tech companies. You know, it seemed like there was a concerted uh, effort and a coordination on both sides of the aisle that they both asked yes and no questions. And they would, um, you know, cite one another's comments across the aisle. And the fact that Mark Zuckerberg would still not give a yes or no answer to things. And I thought that that was incredibly notable. Um, and and also, when you when you look at the very beginning of the hearing, you heard one lawmaker ask uh, if the members testifying were under oath, and if they weren't under oath, why they would need advice of counsel. Um, as you go forward and see that some of the things that they said were just outright lies, like the fact that their algorithms aren't meant to keep people on YouTube or Facebook longer. Um, this is in their investor calls. This is in statements that they've made. I mean, this is very obvious stuff. And they're flat out lies. If they were under oath, that would be a much more serious offense. But because they weren't, they can really say whatever they want. And until Congress changes regulations, which I think there was a clear uh, goal by members of both sides to emphasize that they will be changing uh, these regulations until something changes and there are no repercussions. I think that we're going to continue to see this effort at spin because there's really uh, nothing incentivizing them to not do that. You know, you hear lawmakers talk about that these fines, these small fines aren't doing anything. They're very aware what the problems are. And I think that this was probably the most educated set of questions we've seen across the board from any hearing for tech CEOs in the past couple of years. I feel like the uh, focus on business model and questions around recommendation uh, systems and services were much more informed than, than we've heard in the past. Evan, from your perspective, uh, were there were there questions that you had hoped would be asked that were and answered, or uh, perhaps were there questions that simply weren't asked and and maybe show the limitations of the dialogue in the U.S. right now? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I'll agree um, with with sort of a bunch of what's been said already. That I do think there were definitely some more substantive questions asked this time around. It was heartening to me as others have said, to see lawmakers focused more on the business model and particularly on the, I don't know that I actually heard the words surveillance capitalism uttered, but um, you know, they were focusing on the ways that these companies are not just uh, hosting content, but um, harvesting our data and weaponizing it essentially to uh, sort of serve that content in ways that I think uh, can be really harmful. And so I thought that that was uh, positive sign. Um, that said, I think while we're maybe seeing lawmakers um, get closer to understanding the problem, based on what was said, I'm still very concerned that they are heading toward uh, trying to fix this problem with policy that will do more harm than good. Um, and there was a number of kind of flippant statements about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act that, from my perspective, 
continued to belie an utter lack of understanding from lawmakers of how that law works, what it allows, what it doesn't allow, um, and uh, what changing it would actually do to address these harms, uh, these real harms that we're seeing from platforms. I'm happy to say more about that. As you all know, uh, you know, we hosted an event yesterday with a number of different voices, um, folks that run smaller platforms like Wikimedia, um, members of the sex worker harm reduction community, um, international human rights groups who um, have real concerns about the ways that changes to Section 230 in the United States could empower repressive regimes elsewhere um, in cracking down on speech from human rights groups uh, and a number of other concerns. Uh, you know, Fight for the Future organized a letter from more than 70 racial justice, LGBTQ, uh, human rights and other organizations um, urging Congress to be extremely careful when considering changes to Section 230. And so uh, I think, again, I'm heartened to see lawmakers getting a better understanding of the problem. Um, but with internet policy, the devil is always in the details. Um, and I think especially when we see folks like Mark Zuckerberg um, coming out and saying, yes, we want changes to Section 230, that should give everyone pause. Because if we do this wrong, we could actually end up uh, inadvertently solidifying the monopoly power of the companies that are doing the most harm and crushing the smaller platforms or the ones that may come along and provide a better alternative to this surveillance capitalist business model that I think everyone here agrees, or I don't want to speak for you all, but that I believe is fundamentally incompatible with basic human rights and democracy. Uh, and then it, finally, just to answer your question more directly, Justin, you know, as you know, I submitted a question to you all because I do, it does frustrate me, especially from Democrats who I believe should care about free speech and should care about the impact on marginalized communities, particularly. Um, it just feels like we are obsessed with what does Facebook allow? What does Facebook amplify? And I think those are our important questions, but I never hear a single question about what does Facebook suppress? Um, who, what is being algorithmically, uh, who is being algorithmically disenfranchised or having their voices silenced? Um, and I just think it's essential that we recognize that the company is doing harm in both directions. They are amplifying harmful content, but they are actively suppressing beneficial content. And we need to take that seriously because those impacts on freedom of expression have concrete impacts on the social movements that we need to survive as a civilization, social movements like the climate justice movement, like the racial justice movement. Um, and we need to recognize that um, if we come up with a solution to disinformation that prevents the next Me Too or Black Lives Matter movement from emerging, that's not a real solution. Um, and I'll just quickly uh, I'll mention that Kathy Castor, Democrat from Florida's 14th district, did in fact refer to surveillance advertising in a question to Mark Zuckerberg. So um, perhaps your letter got to got uh, you know through on on some level, and and there was other some discussion around um, questions around the amount of information that's hoovered up um, by these platforms and how that's used to then keep people on platform as well. Um, so to some extent, I, I suppose they. They, they heard you. Uh, Yael, uh, any, any response? I mean, I, I know that there were multiple experts who um, were holding their head in their digital hands on Twitter around the Section 230 discourse early on in this thing, including Jeff Kosef, who I, uh, I think was about to sob about it. Um, yeah, I want to pick up on what Evan just said. I, I think it's so important. I agree. I didn't hear it come across in the questions at all. It, it's part of why whenever I talk about whether it's Section 230 or whether it's 
not necessarily about Section 230, but just about what the platforms do with the speech. I constantly focus on two major points. One is they don't treat all speech equally and especially certain voices, including politicians or certain elite voices are being treated to a completely different standard than everybody else. But I always talk about what speech are they amplifying and what speech are they suppressing? Who are they silencing? Who are they boosting? And they shouldn't have the control to make those decisions. And part of why, and this was my first question in our article, I really want to focus on the tools as opposed to the actual speech. Not that content moderation isn't incredibly important and incredibly difficult. But one of the things that I did like, and it was subtle, um, and maybe one of the congressmen or women should have made it a little less subtle, is you notice that they didn't really focus as much on speech, but more on, again, the tools, sort of the whether it's micro-targeting, whether it's amplification, whether it's how your algorithms are sharing content or the recommendation engines, that gets a lot more to what is the platform doing with that speech. Um, so when I, I mean, when I talk to section, about Section 230 and I agree with Evan, it is gonna be very important that this is done in a way that does not harm uh, startups, harm the smaller companies, I wish we could talk about it without having to talk about Section 230, because to me, it's just about baking in actual accountability for the business decisions and your platform's decisions on what they do with speech and where we can build in accountability for the externalities that you're causing in society. Unfortunately, that always gets wrapped up into a Section 230 conversation. Yeah. Katie, I just, maybe I'll just uh, uh, come back to you as well on this. On, in terms of, of harms, you, you know, you focus in your questions on uh, not just harms, but like specific crimes that you see being committed on the platforms. Does that tie it all to you to the Section 230 debate? Uh, I don't know. Did you get answers about, about those crimes as, uh, as you put forward? One thing that was, I guess, to a certain extent disappointing as a researcher who has focused on criminal activity that's not just hosted, but actually facilitated by the platforms is that there's so much talk about misinformation and disinformation and um, you know removal or suppression of speech. And I think these are important issues and certainly the free speech issue is important. But as we you know have lawmakers asking these CEOs questions that really can can trump up to free speech, there are major criminal organizations using platforms like Facebook to traffic, endangered wildlife species to, and actually making payments and things through Facebook pay, the company gets a cut of those payments. Um, and this is aside from, you know, the individual value of users and their activity. Um, we see bloody antiquities trafficked widely on the platform from conflict zones, weapons from conflict zones that would be a sanctions violation. I mean, this is, this is small stuff. Uh, this is just small examples of some of what we're seeing. There was a recent report about plots of the Amazon rainforest being illegally sold through Facebook. And I think what, and that was actually in Facebook marketplace. And I think that these are issues where, you know, they're, they're trying to get the companies ultimately to address, to, to put more into content moderation. So they're properly moderated. That's one of the things that we've seen addressed. But when you deal with these issues that are focused on just speech or that may be partisan issues, 
um, it opens the door for a lot of wiggle room in what these companies can say they're doing to moderate. But if you're talking about criminal activity that if a bank you know, it hosted a wildlife trafficking gang out of Indonesia, they would be under major violations based on the Bank Secrecy Act. And I think we need to we need to look at some of the things that are actual crimes that these platforms facilitate because they will have to invest in better moderation to address those. And some of the other issues will come naturally if there is more invested in, in addressing this criminal activity on the platforms. Hey, I just want to push you on this point, just on one thing. One of the exchanges that happened again and again with Zuckerberg yesterday was um, him sort of saying, uh, look, you know, you've brought up child exploitation. You've brought up this other criminal activity, the uh, opioids, and I think drugs was another. And and what he kept saying is some, something along the lines of basically, you know, we're, we're doing our, our best. We're making our best effort. And what you should expect from us is, uh, you know, sort of reasonable effort at this, you know, um, that we're never going to be able to kind of clean up all of it. Um, but there was quite a lot of discussion about like, what's the appropriate amount of child exploitation material to exist on your site. I don't know. How do you how do you feel? Did we get anywhere on that? It was fascinating that Zuckerberg in particular tried to turn any aspect of uh, the fact that they were cited the most for reporting certain content or removing certain content into like a win for crime. The reason that they cited they were cited so much in the complaints from the DOJ on Capitol Riot, for instance, wasn't just because they were working with lawmakers. Lawmakers found a lot of that information in the open source. It's because they were used the most of all of the other platforms for those purposes. The exact same thing with the child exploitation. I, I thought it was great that the lawmakers actually brought up the fact that Pornhub had the the one of the lowest reporting numbers of child exploitation compared to the millions that Facebook reports. And if you, it, it's not just because they're reporting they're sending this stuff and and flooding the Nick Mix cyber tip line. But TTP did a report last year looking at federal cases where child exploitation, uh, child exploitation, where Facebook was used as the vehicle to commit that crime. And of those cases, I think there were 360 some cases that were examined. Facebook was was the ones that contacted authorities in only 9% of the cases. So sending something to the NCMEC cyber tip line is not the same as reporting a child exploitation crime. And they, they constantly blur the lines on their, their efforts on moderation and what they're doing, whether or not they're look, working with law enforcement. And actually, if you go to Facebook's law enforcement page, um, where, they, where you're supposed to contact them if you have a subpoena or something, in some cases, they actually know they will charge a fee to provide the data that they're requesting. We're talking about law enforcement cases. If, if any other industry did that, um, it, it would be major news. And I think also when you're talking about, you know, they, of course, the 99% of what we remove, we remove ourselves, blah, blah, blah. Um, when you break down the numbers in their transparency reports, let's look at, uh, you know, the, um, the reports on hate and terrorism, for instance. They say 98% of the, in the fourth quarter of, of hate content or terror content, they removed with their AI systems. That still means hundreds of thousands of pieces were reported by users and deemed violating and then removed by Facebook. Um, and that's just the stuff that was reported. But when we're talking about looking at their new groups issues and things like that, 
these are like, these people are like-minded people. They're not going to report each other. An admin of a militia group isn't going to report the content. And so there's so much more that's being missed. And that number they're not giving us is what percentage they're removing of what's actually on the platform. So there's often this kind of playing with the fractions, um, which is, you know, a common thing. Um, Evan, you know, you're, you're calling for more transparency in content moderation and how these things are done. So we should be able to see, uh, you know, under the hood a bit. How do you think about these issues? Yeah, for sure. And I, I think having more of that transparency is essential, um, you know, specifically because of what Katie just said, you know, the platforms are um, acknowledging, particularly Facebook, um, that they're using AI to do a tremendous amount of moderation. And, you know, researchers from Witness, uh, the EFF, and I, th- I believe uh, a Syrian organization um, did some research a couple of years ago, which is, you know, even before they ramped up more of these um, AI moderation practices and found that there's an enormous amount of legitimate speech that is being suppressed by those anti-terrorism filters specifically that are shared um, not just by Facebook, but across most of the major platforms. And the vast majority of the speech that is being silenced or removed is that by uh, politically active Muslim and Arab folks who live outside the US. And so I think it's just so important that we keep that in focus, especially as Republicans, you know, as, you know, as we said at the outset, uh, although, you know, it was interesting to see a bit less of that in this hearing, but as kind of the far right in the US has largely co-opted this frame of um, pretending to be the defenders of free speech or free expression, I think some on the left have sort of become skeptical or just sort of um, lost sight of um, the the harm done by actual suppression of speech. Um, And I think it's really, really important that we do recognize that um, using automation can come with serious consequences. So can using human moderators. And so I think what frustrates me in these conversations is is that it feels like there is no acknowledgement of the trade-offs, right? No matter what system you put in place to address online harms or harmful speech, it's going to come with collateral damage. And I, th- I think it's okay to acknowledge that and then still decide it's worth it, right? But I, I, what I don't hear enough from lawmakers or from those who are calling for more aggressive moderation as the solution to these problems is an acknowledgement of those trade-offs and taking seriously, how do we weigh the harm done by militia groups having a platform um, against the harm done by you know, small local racial justice groups trying to hold police who are murdering folks in their town accountable having a platform? And I know that we wanna say that you know, we should be able to have one without the other, but what we've seen over and over again is that we can't trust these platforms to make those decisions um, and that they've often um, purged um, really legitimate groups that are doing important work and challenging institutions of power, challenging oppressive ideologies while they're trying to remove harmful groups and disinformation. And so for me, what that brings me back to is again, that there are certain problems that emerge on these platforms that are societal problems. They are deep cultural problems that we need social movements to fix. And I think part of, there, there is a bit, you know, again, as you know, I feel really strongly about the business model. I think it is inherently harmful and we need to address it with policy. But I think we also need to grapple with that some of our reaction to blame technology for problems is part of our collective unwillingness to admit that white supremacy and white nationalism and these other harmful far-right ideologies have been 
uh, an element of politics in the United States and around the world um, since this country's inception, right? And so there's something here where I think uh, we, it's a bit of this wanting to say, this is not us, it's just being caused by Facebook. No, this is a real problem and Facebook is exacerbating it. Facebook's business model is exacerbating it. And we can take aim at those specific business practices. Um, but I do think it requires, um, you know, to fix these problems. There's no one piece of internet legislation that's going to fix all these problems. And I think, you know, everyone wants there to be, but we need to take a more holistic approach to thinking about um, online and offline harms. Uh, you know, just to respond to you, Katie, you know, and I think, it's so important that we do lift up and point to these concrete examples where um, crimes are happening or um, you know harm is happening. And to me, it, you know, I, I, I take your point that whether you know that it, it can be helpful from a policy perspective to focus on things that are actually illegal. Although I think we would all agree that you know that shouldn't be the line. That there are things that are really harmful that are not necessarily illegal. But that said, I think it's just really important to say that Section 230 does not immunize platforms from engaging in illegal activity, no matter how many times lawmakers claim that it does. And I think it's really important that lawmakers recognize that Section 230 is not the only lever that they have to hold companies accountable or to incentivize good behavior or disincentivize bad behavior. And it sort of feels like they've kind of latched onto it as if it's the only tool that they have. But like they are lawmakers, they can pass laws. <laughs> um, and, you know, you do start to run into the, the other thing I think is important to say is a lot of the issues that are getting projected onto Section 230 in the end are issues with the First Amendment, where Section 230 is basically making the First Amendment work in the context of platforms that could otherwise be sued out of existence, the smaller ones. But in the end, most of the decisions that they make end up being protected by the First Amendment. And what, you know, for better or for worse, and we can, you know, we can talk about yeah. whether we need to change the First Amendment at some point, but I think that's really important. But that doesn't mean that they can't take aim at surveillance advertising. And I was really heartened to see Anna Eshoo talking about introducing a bill that would actually outright ban behavioral micro-targeted advertising. I think that would be fantastic. I think enforcing strong anti antitrust laws would be fantastic. I think enforcing yeah. existing civil rights laws would be fantastic. So it's not that we do nothing, but I just think it's um, we're missing the point if we think that the only way to do this is by using Section 230 as a hammer, which again, in the end, I think actually uh, will benefit the companies that we're trying to rein in um, while harming their competition. So it is a good place to, um, because you've begun to do so, um, to, to kind of pivot to what folks uh, hope will happen next in terms of legislation. Um, and Yael, I, I know that you've got a laundry list of things you'd like to see come out of this committee, but also others. What, what, are you, what are you hoping will happen now? Yeah, I mean, to Evan's point, there is no one magical solution that's going to make us a happy, lovely society that doesn't have these problems anymore. So I don't have any hopes that there's one magical thing that's going to come out of this. There's a variety of things that need to happen. I go back and forth between the part of me that's sort of this incremental, just because one certain piece of legislation doesn't fix the whole world doesn't mean it's not still important, while also wanting to think about the bigger things. Um, I think there's some lots of smaller bills. I don't mean smaller. They're not smaller bills, but they kind of take aim at individual things, like the ESHU bill that, that was just mentioned. I think on Section 230, I think, for me, I've always said the bigger problem is not necessarily that it's bad legislation. It's that it's overinterpreted by the courts. I mean, Facebook will claim Section 230 for things that are absurd. Like if their advertising is specifically violating civil rights acts, they will still try to claim Section 230. So 
to everybody's point here, I, I, I think the bigger problem is it's actually overly broadly interpreted by the courts. One of the things, you know, Justin, you and I have talked about, before I get to exactly what I'd love to see happen, this, this idea of this January 6th commission, and I know it's not the only thing that's wrong in the world, but talking about what happened on January 6th and whether or not the platforms bear some responsibility in it is really critical. And so, you know, at the towards the very end of the hearing, um, Congresswoman Fletcher, if anyone was still like awake and watching by this point, asked a really great question, um, which I think, Justin, might have been your question in the article we put out. You know, Mark Zuckerberg kept saying over and over again in his absolutely self-serving way of talking about Section 230 that what's really important is just to make sure that we're putting in systems, good systems. He kept using the word systems. And Congresswoman Fletcher said, you know, we have no way to verify when you speak about your systems, if they actually are good or not. And without any access to true data to be able to evaluate these things, we can't write good legislation. And then she pivoted to January 6th. And she said that includes the data about what happened on January 6th. And will you commit to sharing the removed content with Congress? And she didn't say content. She said the removed content. And so before I get to my laundry list of legislation, if you want me to later, I think that's a really critical point. It's not just about transparency for transparency's sake. It's about transparency There's, without accountability doesn't matter. It's transparency into what you took down, what your actions were, what your business decisions were. The questions that I added in the article were, could we get some forensic uh, evidence on the people who've been in charged for crimes in January 6th? And can we know, did Facebook recommend them into groups? Did Facebook uh, curate their content so Stop the Steal showed up in their feed more often? Did, you know, did Facebook recommend them into some of these Stop the Steal groups? Those are the things I want to know. So a lot of that I think can be interesting, which goes back to the very first point, Another reason, sorry, I should have said at the outset that Congress, I do think, took this hearing a little bit differently than previous hearings is because most of them were in the building on January 6th. It became personal. And for many of us, including many of the people that Evan has spoken about, these things were personal long before January 6th. Katie, you, you wanted to jump in on that. You know, I found the question about removal of evidence and if they'll share that particularly interesting because... Uh, last summer, I did an op-ed for my work on antiquities trafficking about the fact that trafficking and conflict is a war crime that's being facilitated by this platform. And it's one of many war crimes that their go-to content moderation is to delete it. And we've seen Facebook videos and YouTube videos submitted in international criminal courts as evidence to convict war criminals in recent years. It's really important evidence um, that, that may not be re reasonable to use right now, but down the line, it's incredibly important for these kind of crimes. We directly asked Facebook if they would deactivate but preserve such evidence for these types of crimes. And they told us no. Um, <laughs> so the fact that they are, they, you know, claiming that they might do this with these, uh, with, with these types of crimes with regard to January 6th, A, there are major privacy concerns, and B, it shows that Facebook's interest, it, there, are, there are two different kind of systems of justice for how it's going to address these things. Uh, there's all kinds, you know, to Evan's point about voices being silenced, there were all kinds of videos of the atrocities happening in the Kashmir region that were removed in favor of, um, you know, the, the government that Zuckerberg has enjoyed a lot of support from. 
And these are also videos of, of war crimes that are erased forever, evidence that's very important. And so I think that uh, this brings into question how these companies are not applying these standards evenly across the board. And when it, is one is one atrocity worse than another and, and really what their role is in that? As we kind of draw to a close here, let's let's just go around and, and hear uh, one idea or issue that you're most keen to hear see addressed by the legislators. We we know they they promised again and again yesterday that uh, as they have in other or other members have in in prior hearings this spring that legislation is coming. There are going to be some laws written, and you know if we're to kind of look at the relative bipartisan nature of the effort yesterday. We might expect that some might actually move forward um, reasonably quickly. What are you know one or two things that you're most keen to see happen? And Yael, I'll start with you. I don't know if this is the one I'm most keen, but the one that I think has the most legs after listening to yesterday, and I do think is important, will be around children. I mean, I am sure that Facebook lost their minds when I think you said it was the BuzzFeed article was the one who got the leaked information that they were creating an Instagram for kids under 13 right before this hearing happened. So I'm not saying that's necessarily my top goal, but I think it's a really important one. And by the way, it will still chip away at the business model in general, if you can chip away at how the business model is harming children. Um, Because for me, it's all about the business model. I do hope that instead of having the conversations about Section 230 be a content moderation conversation, we can start shifting more to a conversation about accountability for how your targeting tools, recommendation engines, and algorithms are working and what they're doing. Excellent. Yeah. And that was Ryan Mack's uh, uh, scoop in Buzzy with Craig Silverman, I think, about Instagram for kids, which clearly was a was a target. The committee had also had a prior hearing on implications of, of digital on, on children earlier in March. So they were primed for it. Katie, you want to go next on a, a legislative thing and then we'll end up with Evan. Yeah. You know, for me, I think one of the things I'll be curious to see in the coming months is what exactly lawmakers do to incentivize these platforms to be more accountable for what they're posting, what their tools are, are pushing. Um, we know that minor fines don't work. We even heard lawmakers talk about that. There is the question of, you know, what type of regulatory issues, whether that comes from antitrust action, which is probably years out at this point. Um, you know, what are the immediate actions that these lawmakers are going to take to really incentivize these companies to do better at this? You know, we see it across all kinds of other industries. And I think this is now tech's reckoning. Evan, how about you? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'll, I'll split this into two two sections, sort of the offense and the defense. Um, I think uh, the thing that I'm most excited about seeing would be finally Congress passing a strong federal data privacy law that takes aim directly at the business model of harvesting our data and using it to shove bad information down the throats of the people who are most susceptible to it. Um, I would also love to see legislation and or FTC investigations that take aim directly at the practice of non-transparent algorithmic manipulation, both amplification and suppression. On the defensive side, it's important to me 
that on the algorithm side, I'm actually really concerned about using Section 230 to address that issue, because I think what it does is it, it comes with all the same problems that we see with speech generally in the sense that, you know, for example, Anna Eshoo, who I, again, I'm very excited about her surveillance advertising bill, but she had a previous bill that basically created a 230 carve out like SESTA-FOSTA for certain types of speech, um, for algorithmic amplification of certain types of speech. If I'm Facebook's lawyer, I'm going to go tell the engineers just algorithmically suppress large categories of speech so that we don't become liable for amplifying it. Um, and when we recognize that everything on a platform like Facebook is either amplified or suppressed, nothing is just there, um, you start to recognize that a 230 carve out around algorithmic amplification essentially ends up having the same effect as a 230 carve out for certain types of speech generally. So that's one thing I'm on the lookout for. And then to, to your point, Yael, about um, children, I, I agree. I think you know that's something that's likely to move, but I'm also worried about that. Mark Zuckerberg's comments um, about what he would like to see changed in 230 sound eerily like the Earn It Act. Uh, which is a piece of legislation that has been widely condemned by human rights, civil liberties, and LGBTQ organizations as one that would utterly fail to protect children, um, but would have a tremendously harmful impact on freedom of expression uh, and essentially put um, law enforcement um, and uh, a kind of an unelected panel in charge of dictating platforms moderation practices, as well as sort of an underhanded attack at end-to-end -end encryption, which is one of the most important technologies protecting vulnerable people around the world right now. So I think I'm looking, you know, both offensively at what can we do to actually strike at the root cause of the harms that we see from platforms, but then also how can we fend off some of this really either misguided or disingenuous legislation that um, could actually end up recreating harms that we've seen in the past. And the last thing I'd say is on a concrete um, note, um, we did see legislation introduced last session, the uh, Safe Sex Workers Study Act, which would direct the uh, Health and Human Services to uh, investigate SESTA-FOSTA, the last major change to Section 230, and look at um, the public health impact of that legislation on marginalized communities and particularly sex workers and LGBTQ folks. That legislation is likely to be reintroduced. And from where I'm sitting, any lawmaker that says they think Section 230 should be changed would be irresponsible to not support uh, doing Congress's due diligence to investigate the last time we changed Section 230 and make sure that we don't make the same mistakes again. I want to I thank all of you for, for doing this today. Um, thank you for helping us understand what was a six hour hearing in just about 40 minutes. So I appreciate that. And uh, hope to talk to you on this subject and more in future. Thanks, Justin. Thanks so much, Justin. Yeah, thanks y'all. Rather than limit the spread of disinformation, Facebook, Google, and Twitter have created business models that exploit the human's brain preference for divisive content to get Americans hooked on their platforms at the expense of the public interest. So do you agree that your business model and the design of your products is to get as many people on the platform as possible and to keep them there for as long as possible? If you could answer yes or no, that'd be great. Uh, Congresswoman, from a mission perspective, we want to serve everyone, but our goal is not, uh, we don't, I don't give our, our newsfeed team, our Instagram team goals around um, increasing the amount of time that people spend. I believe that if we build a useful product, just, which... Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, to Mr. Zuckerberg, your algorithms use unseemly amounts of data to keep users on your platform because that leads to more ad revenue. Now, businesses are in business to make money. We all understand that.
But your model has a cost to society. The most engaging posts are often those that induce fear, anxiety, anger, and that includes deadly, deadly misinformation. And your company's insatiable desire to maintain user engagement will continue to give such content a safe haven if doing so improves your bottom line. I'd like to ask my first question of all the witnesses. Do each of you acknowledge that your company has profited off harmful misinformation, conspiracy theories, and violent content on your platform? Just a yes or no. Starting with Mr. Dorsey, yes or no? No, that's not our business. Mr. Zuckerberg? No, Congresswoman, I don't think we profit from it. I think it hurts our service. Mr. Pinchow? Congresswoman, certainly not our intent, and we definitely do not want such content, and we have clear well, policies against it. Since you all said no, can you please provide to me in writing how you manage to avoid collecting revenue from ads either targeted by or served on such content? So I will be expecting that. Those were representatives Frank Pallone and Kathy McMorris-Rogers, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, representatives Ann Eshoo and Robin Kelly, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, and Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai. In addition to our panel, I also caught up with Chris Gilliard, who many of you will know by his Twitter handle, Hypervisible. We caught up on the hearing and his belief that January 6th and the social troubles in the past year may have finally convinced Americans that what happens online poses a grave danger to the real world. Here's Chris. My name is Chris Gilliard. I am a visiting research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School Shorenstein Center. What are you working on these days? What, what are the kind of key things that you're up to? So I'm really kind of digging into some questions about privacy and surveillance as I do. One of the things I'm, I'm working on is trying to tease out kind of a, a taxonomy of surveillance. I talk a lot about, I've got an upcoming thing at University of Michigan. It's going to talk about the ways that e-carceration, so um, ankle monitors and other types of surveillance that are applied to either incarcerated folks or formerly incarcerated folks. But I'm interested in that spectrum, you know, the range um, from things like ankle monitors all the way up to things like Fitbits and, and Apple Watches and Oura Rings and how those things are more closely aligned with each other than people tend to believe. So that's the thing I'm working on right now. Well, you must have been somewhat heartened then to hear phrases like surveillance advertising actually come out of the mouths of congressional representatives on Thursday. Uh, they, were, they were using some of that language. What did you hear that, I don't know, gave you some hope that these issues are at the fore? Well, yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're getting a little bit better. They're doing their homework and their staffers seem to be doing their homework. Questions about algorithmic amplification, about surveillance, bringing up as legitimate questions whether or not these companies should exist at the scale that they do or whether we should consider breaking them up, uh, I think are all really important questions that uh, I would like to have seen more attention paid to. But to, to even have them introduced, I think, is important because we haven't seen too much of that in the past. There was a little bit of attention to, you know, the kind of scale of, of harms. There was a lot of conversation, particularly around child exploitation, course disinformation, other things, um, where Congress people seem to almost dig into the kind of fractions issue that we always run into with these companies at these hearings where, you know, they're able to report 
millions of actions against uh, a bad piece of content or, you know, uh, 99% of uh, all the bad stuff's been removed. And yet when you kind of dig into that, that 1% is still a pretty big number. Yeah. And, and we hear that a lot, you know, Facebook releases, I think quarterly reports on, on things like that. You know, I think those numbers are pretty misleading because when you dig into even how they arrive at those numbers, a lot of it is guesswork. A lot of it is, is done by their AI. A lot of it is missed. But also, you know, the, the, the argument, the way Zuckerberg kind of couched this, I think in itself is, is pretty troubling, right? So the, the reason, so it's sort of like, he almost made it seem like it was a positive that they found so much child exploitation on their site. They find so much child exploitation because they host so much child exploitation. That's not a good thing. You know, I mean, it means that I think what one of the important things to never get away from when we think about the content that the uh, sites like Facebook, the platforms like Facebook host is so much of it. For, so anything, the, the, even the pieces that missed, right, that are missed. So even if we accept their framing, that they catch 98% or something like that, right? Just let's take that as legitimate for a second. That's still a lot of harm and hate and exploitation that people are being exposed to in the millions of people. You know, people often struggle for to find a metaphor to explain what Facebook is. And one of the, the ones I like to use sometimes is uh, for food, right? So if, if McDonald's said, we make so many burgers, it's impossible to get rid of all the rat feces in them, right? We make, we sell so many shakes. It's, it's, it's impossible to get all of the steel shavings out of them, right? We wouldn't accept that. I mean, in the, right, in the, yeah, there's FDA um, rules for certain kinds of um, materials that are allowed, right? How many rat hairs or whatever can be in something, right? But we would recognize that as a faulty framework that if you can't, if your product can't exist, without proliferating hate and in this you know we don't without even getting into how they amplify it right if they can't even if it can't exist without hosting these things then my argument is that it shouldn't exist it should not be allowed to exist what i did see uh, with the hearings too though is that the congress people were a lot more adept at, at recognizing the misleading part and that and so pointing out that facebook not only hosts this but promotes it and amplifies it and so they're not just neutral in that uh, as someone just put it on the site and it's allowed to sit there, but that Facebook actively recommends this, you know, groups, I think has, as many people predicted, scholars and researchers and journalists predicted, groups has done exactly what people said it did, which is allow some of this stuff to go undercover, but again, amplify it and promote it. I mean, a large degree, 64% or something like that. Facebook's own research says that a large degree of the hate groups that were um, that people see, they were recommended by Facebook. So too big to uh, scale, right? Like the, that, that idea that since we're so big, we can't possibly keep track of everything, I think is a really, it's a very faulty way of, of looking at things. And I, I think more people are kind of waking up to uh, what's wrong with that and how that harms society, frankly. Again and again, and you focused on uh, on Facebook again and again, Zuckerberg said things along those lines. He said, you know, that society should expect them to build, uh, you know, generally reasonably effective systems. And so his point is that there, it's not possible to build a platform at scale 
that does moderate content to the extent that perhaps you know you're you're describing here he seems to sort of accept that within the bounds of what might be unfortunate or uh you know even hateful speech or content that people might post um there's always going to be some degree of of kind of stuff that we don't want to see but that it would not be possible to build a system that cancels all of that out without also introducing issues around speech what do you have in mind what what could be done to do you think is there something specific could facebook double the number of human moderators it's got could it reduce amplification uh, algorithmically are there are there whole sort of zones of speech that that ought to be sort of i don't know banned from the site what do you think zuckerberg's argument is interesting because his argument about their size seems to indicate that he thinks there should be uh, X number of steel shavings allowed to, to extend the metaphor. But I don't think it's an argument for better AI or more moderators. I, I think it's an argument for why the company should be broken up. If you're too big to operate safely, then you should be made smaller or completely abolished. I mean, you know, their choice. But the other thing, you know, I think is really disingenuous is there's been some tremendous reporting in MIT Tech Review in, or from BuzzFeed News in the Wall Street Journal that talks about how time and time again, Facebook's own researchers have pointed out to them some of the problems with Facebook's model, right? That the way they drive engagement uh, above all else and growth above all else contributes to the problems that they have. And they've been, and these researchers have been ignored. It's a very disingenuous argument on the part of uh, Zuckerberg. So again, Ali, I don't, I, th I think as, Facebook as it exists could be made better. It can't be made good. It's my assertion, but it could be made better. But decisions by some of the, by some of the people at the very top, like uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Joel Kaplan have denied, you know, or ignored their own researchers uh, in, in um, providing them ways to actually improve the health of the site in terms of, you know, hateful content in terms of, uh, yeah, and just in terms of hateful content, racism, misogyny. And the, and the other thing, you know, this didn't come up because the hearings were primarily focused on the United States. But, I mean, we see these problems with Facebook in a lot of different places because they install themselves without the necessary structure to, to properly understand a particular culture, right? So they install themselves where they don't, have many moderators or any moderators in some case who speak the, the local language, uh, who don't understand the local political context. And we've seen this time and time again. And so again, if they're not able to be in places and operate safely, right? Where they're not actively perpetuating harms, they should not be in those places. I mean, I think it's inherently unethical. Zuckerberg tends to argue, I think, and, and Facebook representatives tend to argue, um, whoever is carrying water for them at that moment tends to argue that Facebook in itself is a good and that their existence somehow makes life better for people. So, okay, I don't believe that. Okay. But if you were to believe that, then what follows is that they would have to follow, if they would have to like adhere to some kind of ethic about the kind of harms they do, but they, they don't do that. I mean, they, there are multiple reports of them going into different countries where they're not prepared to deal with uh, the ramifications of 
existing ethically in that space. Mark was pushed a couple of times on different decisions that he took. One was around how he deals with disinformation and whether he personally took decisions that diminished the effectiveness of algorithms that would have punished disinformation or removed you know, recommenda- recommendation amplification from it. Um, in particular, one example, I think, which came out of one of those news reports where Zuckerberg purportedly reduced the effectiveness of a particular model by 80% in order to reduce the possibility that Facebook would be seen to be censoring conservative points of view. You know, that, that type of thing worries me where you see a kind of fidelity to an appearance rather than to thinking about harm. That sort of thing makes me feel like we can't trust him. You know, I, I, I go back to a thing that Roger McNamee said, you know, I'm paraphrasing, so it's not an exact quote, but he said, Facebook is always going to align with power. With that as their guiding ethic, I mean, I think we, that's shown to be true um, many, many, many times um, in the U.S. And, and across the globe. Uh, with that as their guiding ethic, rather than um, how could they uh, minimize harm or how could they do more to protect uh, vulnerable people and marginalized populations, I think as long as that is true, and I, I mean, I, I think we're going to continue to have these these same and similar problems with Facebook. What's giving you hope these days? Is there anything from the the hearing the other day? Uh, there was a lot of prom- promise of legislation. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what what comes of that. Whether any of that turns into words on a page that suit the problem. Um, but what what's giving you hope these days? You know, I wish it hadn't come to this, but I think the insurrection has really um, shown people that the, uh, you know, I, like, I don't buy the dichotomy between like uh, online and the real world, right? But many people do. And I think that uh, the insurrection showed to a lot of folks the ways that uh, what happens online bleeds into a real life with deadly consequences. And so, you know, that's a weird thing to list as what gives me hope. But I think that it, it's given people the appetite, not only, you know, everyday people who use Facebook or, or use Twitter and things like that. You know, politicians has given them the appetite to really dig into what's going on with some of these systems and to think about how they could be made to operate differently. You know, and I do, I think the last year overall has shown us that, that questions about abolition, right? Uh, whether that's the push to abolish police, push to abolish facial recognition, that the idea that has really entered the public sphere that it's okay, right? And sometimes even uh, a good thing to talk about abolishing things that particularly technologies that are harmful, that there is po- it is possible to have a society without facial recognition. It's possible to have a society without Facebook and that maybe we would be better off without some of those things. And so where that seemed fanciful and ridiculous and, and people were, you know, people who would, promote those ideas were heaped with disdain not too long ago. It's now seen as a, as a real possibility. You know, January 6th is something that was discussed at the hearing. I kind of went back and did a tally on the amount of time that was spent on it. And, you know, ultimately out of the five and a half hours of testimony ended up not being much more than about a half hour of discussion. The Republicans didn't ask a single question about, about it. They wanted to sort of avoid it generally. The Democrats, I think, did a good job of Uh, really pressing the point that they were personally 
under siege, you know, and, and physically at harm. And that seemed to, to really inspire many of the questions they asked. Uh, I also think it's really important for Americans to, to look hard at January 6th um, and to think about, you know, what it, what it really means about our society. I mean, I don't know if we'll see another January 6th on the scale of January 2021 again in the near term, you know, at the federal level perhaps, but it's not hard to imagine it happening again, you know, at a state capitol. Right. Well, I, I'm from Michigan. And so, you know, there were people plotting to harm our elected officials, you know, and kidnap the governor and plotting some much of that on platforms like Facebook. So I, I unfortunately don't think we've seen the last of activity like this. I think that it's possible to overstate the importance of these platforms. It's possible to overstate their role. I think that it's important to realize that they do have a role. You know, I think it was interesting to see Congress continually press uh, Dorsey and Zuckerberg to, to take some responsibility, which they weren't going to do, but it was interesting to see them press to do that. When we look back and, and look at what uh, Sheryl Sandberg said about, well, so much of this was not, uh, so much of the insurrection was not planned on Facebook, which turns out to have been misleading at best. I think, I think that's really, really important to, to account for the ways in which these platforms not only make some of this, again, not only make some of this uh, organizing possible, but amplifies it in ways that are really harmful. You know, while the hearing was going on, um, six committee chairs from other congressional committees issued uh, letters to sort of kick off a round of investigation into January 6th. I don't know if that means that the commission that had been proposed that Nancy Pelosi wanted won't move forward, but it does strike me that we'll continue to see more on January 6th going through the year. My hope is that the focus on the social platforms will be more significant and there'll be requests for information and data and other evidence, um, and some of the Congress, uh, congressional representatives, the other night um, asked for that. They said, "You know, make sure you're kind of hanging on to the evidence because we may need it." Um, it does strike me that that getting to that second order set of facts about how exactly recommendation engines engines functioned around stop the steal, the militia movements, white supremacists. Uh, we really need to understand that. And this is, again, it's not new. I mean, if, if people are not familiar with Jesse Daniels' work and how she discusses the longtime ways in which uh, white supremacist networks have, have used the internet to promote themselves, I think it's a, an essential piece of work or set of works to think about that. I don't think, uh, well, what's the right way to say this? Uh, yeah, it's it's really it's it's just I think it's super important, as you said, to understand the ways in which uh, those uh, variety of groups are actively aided by these platforms. I mean, they're again, you know this very well, right? I'm not saying anything to you, but it needs to be repeated over and over that they're just not that things like Facebook and Twitter are not just neutral actors. I did feel like Jack Dorsey was the the only of the three who sort of accepted a bit of the blame. I mean, he said, yes, when asked, you know, did you bear some responsibility? Now he qualified it, but he was the only one that sort of seemed to at least have the wisdom to say, yes, there's something there. You know, I don't know. Do you, do you kind of read Jack a little differently than the others? 
I do. You know, I think, and there's a ton of blame to go around. And, you know, certainly a more proactive stance on some of these things may have uh, prevented much of the last four years. I mean, you know, that's 2020 hindsight. But I do think he was much better in at least accepting that, yeah, accepting a, a bit of blame. And I, I, I mean, I thought he was better at answering some of these questions too. Uh, I was a little troubled by his notion. He seemed to be indicating that for, for several answers, he said something to the extent, well, I don't think Twitter should be able to do this, but I also don't think the federal government or I also don't think the government should have this role either. And I was a little troubled by that um, because it seemed to indicate that legislation or, or the and that yeah, that legislation was not the proper way to deal with some of these issues. Um, I strongly disagree. So there's an extent to which he seems to still be operating from the, the best way to beat uh, bad information. Or what I forget how they, fra- how they tend to frame it. But something along the lines of the best way to, to defeat bad speech is more speech or something like that, which has, has not proven out to be true and has also proven to be very harmful to vulnerable, marginalized populations. The other thing I did note, though, is that Dorsey d- did not address January 6th, um, you know, very much if in his opening remarks at all, but did spend quite a lot of time on Blue Sky and mm-hmm. the idea of this uh, sort of decentralized protocol, which he's very excited about. And he came back to it a couple of times uh, throughout the hearing. Um, I think that one went over most of the representatives' heads, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have some some problems with this idea of crowdsourcing some of these things they've proven to be easily gamed and i don't think that's going to change anytime soon so yeah i his his notion of this decentralized thing outside of either the platforms or government i i think is is not the way to go sort of seems fanciful um yeah you know a, a lot of folks uh were having a lot, a lot of fun with the fact that he had a kind of, you know, crypto clock behind him as well, kind of keeping track <laughs> of the the latest. Uh, and of course, you know, he was the one who also got in trouble for subtweeting Congress right in the middle of the hearing. So I don't yeah. know. It, it, on the one hand, it was a good hearing for Jack Dorsey. On, on another, he kind of embarrassed himself a bit. Yeah. I, I mean, I will admit I laughed at that because I did, I did think the whole yes or no thing was a bit of grandstanding. You know, I mean, as someone who's testified before Congress uh, myself, there are often really complex questions that cannot be boiled down to a yes or no answer. And so it's very difficult, you know, with a five minute clock running, it's, it's very difficult to get into the weeds and answer nuanced questions. But I do think that the, it was limiting in a way that didn't really allow for the fact that some of these questions actually don't have yes or no answers. Yeah. On the other hand, they were asked a couple of yes or no's that, that should have been factually straightforward to, <laughs> That's to answer. True. Yeah. Um, they were asked, you know, have you profited off of disinformation or misinformation content? The answer is, of course, yes. Now, yeah. Zuckerberg seemed to be making some kind of long-term argument that in the long run, you know, this, this damages our brand or, you know, hurts us as the company. But it's absolutely the case that they've they've charged for eyeballs on that content uh, for their advertisers. So that's true. I mean, there's a there's something to. I mean, I wrote a, an essay on this about a year ago, 
about Facebook's very consistent stance that they don't profit from hate on the platform. This is not true. Well, I want to thank you for talking to me about this. Yeah, well, it's a real thrill for me. I appreciate it. I appreciate all the work that you're doing. So thank you. We've got one more segment related to the tech hearings and social media. But first, let's take a break and hear from Romy Geller, fellow with Tech Policy Press, and Brian Jones, co-founder of Tech Policy Press, on the news of the week. Good morning, folks. Morning. Good morning. Uh, So, Remy, what are you reading this week? Yeah, so an article was published on Protocol yesterday that discusses gender discrimination in esports gaming, particularly in China. The article kind of walks through the ways female players are trying to be successful in the industry and the ways they're kind of being pushed back. There's a lot of gender discrimination in esports gaming, and it has a long history. It's a lot of the kind of mechanisms are the same things we see in regular gaming, but um, there's an inherent bias that only men are kind of interested in video games. There is a massive gender game pay gap, rampant sexist comments in the gaming community, and um, not there's not one single woman ranked in the top 300 highest earning gamers worldwide, which is kind of insane. In China, more and more women are being drawn to mobile gaming, but um, there are very rarely any professional female players. Esports is being taken more and more seriously in China. The Shanghai government is supporting the construction of a 898 million esports arena, but females are still feeling like they're not being supported. It's kind of the cycle where there's not enough professional female gamers so there's no inspiration for people who want to be approached in the field and then there's very little cash rewards and it kind of goes on and on so it sounds similar uh the states and and the west generally the same thing we're seeing here but the the sort of scale of course is even more extraordinary you know to see them building a billion dollar esports arena um and the amount of government support for competition is, is pretty incredible yeah, it's, it's almost exactly what we were hearing about from the women's soccer team a few years back. And it's interesting that this is a more like innovative game, but the same problems are still there. And of course, there's the corollary to the situation in the West around Gamergate is one of the earliest examples of, of coordinated participatory disinformation, um, which targeted female players in, in the West. So it's interesting to see a sort of similar dynamic emerging uh, in China. Brian, what are you reading this week? I'm looking at some of the unintended consequences of technology. So to start with, there's a lot of movement right now and a lot of attention being paid to electric vehicles. At this point, everybody has heard of Tesla and Lucid, but other companies, Mercedes, BMW, Chevrolet, are getting into the EV market as well. One of the things that that does, however, is allows drivers to use less gas. Well, our infrastructure is based on a gas tax. And so both on a federal level and on a state level, there's starting to be a growing budget gap as cleaner cars burn less fuel. And so now we're starting to hear a little bit of a a push among lawmakers to find ways to fill that gap. And one of the ones that they're looking at is a vehicle miles traveled system that would charge drivers a penny or two for each mile logged behind the wheel. The reason that I think that story is really interesting 
is because it also ties into something else that happened this week, which is the rise of NFTs, which are essentially electronic art. And the non-fungible token was used this week to sell a piece of artwork that was designed and created by a humanoid robot, Sophia, and it raised $700,000. For me, it really harkens back to a story that Dr. Max Tegmark tells in Life 3.0 about a AI system named Prometheus that begins to develop its own ways of, of producing revenue to fund its own development. The point of all this is that we are getting really good at developing technology. We are still extremely slow at understanding the unintended downstream consequences of these technologies. And I think that it's, it's important, not only that we start to really realize the impact of, you know, how do we shift public policy to raise money by passing something like a VMT, but also as we develop new technologies, as we have AI and robots, how do we start thinking about these in a faster process so that we don't end up 20 years behind the curve, where in 20 years from now, if we don't do anything on the, the infrastructure, we'll be $300 billion short every year on our infrastructure needs. Well, you know, on some level, we haven't even caught up to tax code that recognizes how much e-commerce there is going on, much less, you know, electro electronic cars. So I suppose this is just a common, common phenomenon on some level. Yeah, I, I don't expect that it's different, but I think that it is accelerating. You know, the, the time that it took from, you know, radio to television and the television to the internet seems to be significantly longer and allow for people to catch up versus the rate of innovation that is happening today. And that is where we need to, to really ramp up our ability to, to think about things, both philosophically, governmentally, ethically, and how we're going to address these technologies. Because I think a lot of times these technologies are, are really good. In fact, sometimes they're great, but if we're not prepared for the unintended consequences, you may find yourselves in a situation very quickly where the good is equaled by the unintended bad. Well, thank you both. I hope you have a good week. You as well, Justin. Last week, Avaz, the global activist organization, published a report entitled Facebook From Election to Insurrection, How Facebook Failed Voters and Nearly Set Democracy Aflame. The report contained an analysis of the steps Facebook took throughout 2020 that showed that if the platform had acted earlier, adopting civil society advice and proactively detoxing its algorithm, it could have stopped billions of estimated views of content from pages that repeatedly shared misinformation before the U.S. elections. I spoke to Fad Koran, who's a campaign director at Avaz. Here's Fad. My name is Fad Koran. I'm a campaign director at Avaz. Avaz is a global online civic movement. We have 66 million members, basically in every country in the world. And our mission is to close the gap 
between the way the world is today and the way most people everywhere want the world to be. And so we are member-driven in the campaigns we pursue, and we're fully member-funded. You've just released this report, which looks specifically at Facebook and the role that it played in the disinformation campaign that ultimately led to the violence on January 6th in the U.S. Capitol. Top line, what was the key findings of the report? The, the findings, which, uh, which were terrifying, to be honest, when we put them together, because they're based on 15 months of research, the first was that Facebook could have prevented 10 billion estimated views on the most prominent pages that repeatedly shared misinformation. And that's just between March and October. So imagine if the platform had followed expert advice, it could have prevented you know, tens of millions of people from seeing this type of content from these pages. The, the second big finding is that pages and groups that shared content glorifying violence, so that we're calling for attacks on law enforcement or attacks on people of color, that they had amassed over 32 million followers. And the, the last kind of big finding is that although Facebook promised to do more to fight misinformation, in 2020, top misinformation posts were more viral than misinformation posts in 2019. So again, it, it just shows largely that Americans were pummeled by disinformation and Facebook could have stopped it. The solutions were there and didn't. I think one of the interesting things about this report is that you chronicle the moment that Facebook did decide to intervene. And that moment then becomes your sort of way in to sort of analyze its prior response and what it did and didn't do. Explain kind of how you found that and uh, you know when that happened and what you observed happening on the platform. Yeah, and this is this was very exciting. I have to say we we kind of celebrated a little bit when we saw the down ranking, you know, these pages that were again flooding Americans with misinformation suddenly not being able to weaponize Facebook's algorithm. So this is what happened. Facebook early in 2018 actually said that they were going to move to reduce the reach of pages and groups that repeatedly share misinformation and other types of borderline content. The problem is nobody had a way to measure whether Facebook was actually tweaking its algorithm or not. And what we decided to do was instead of playing whack-a-mole, just finding these posts for these bad actors and reporting to Facebook, we were going to use all of the fact check content by independent fact checkers and reverse engineer to see who are the main actors sharing all of that misinformation and then find the gaps in Facebook's policies and start pushing this content to uh, Facebook to ensure that they downgrade those pages. And of course, Avaz wasn't the only one kind of finding this content and sharing it. You had fact checkers and a large civil society coalition that was pushing as well. What happened was in September, at the end of September, we delivered a lot of this to Facebook and to fact checkers. That basically boosted the algorithm. We hit some sort of threshold, it seems, with Facebook. And we began seeing pages that were getting 700,000 you know, interactions per week, a million interactions per week, suddenly just have their interaction, their reach collapse. And the way we found out, Facebook didn't tell us, by the way, we saw the pages beginning to complain about suddenly not being able to reach as many people. So we then used the data that we had to essentially say, okay, so now we can finally see that Facebook 
with a lot of pressure from outside can will actually tweak its algorithms and reduce people's reach. But that happened in October. What would it have looked like if Facebook took this more seriously when the pandemic started, say, in March? And so we, what the results we saw in October, we just extrapolated to if they happened in March. And that's where we get the 10 billion estimated views number. What we see effectively on the graphs and the charts that you've provided is just a cliff, a plunge in terms of the interaction on these various pages and groups that you were following. So clearly, you know, Facebook had the mechanisms, had the tools at it at at its hand to be able to kind of contend with the worst of this stuff and just hadn't decided to use any of it until the last moment. Yeah. Or or they just don't understand how this information ecosystem works. We don't know. This is why one of our calls is an investigation of Facebook. The truth is we don't know whether this is a systems failure, whether it was an executive decision at the company not to proactively take these steps. We do know is that Facebook definitely had the power to take these steps. And we actually see two plunges, which I want to emphasize kind of for everyone listening here. The first plunge was when Facebook began downranking specific pages that were you know, sharing misinformation repeatedly that were flagged by us. There's a second plunge that also happens where Facebook announced break glass policies, where they tweak the whole algorithm to increase essentially the, in what they call kind of news ecosystem quality, NEQs. So imagine just this power. I mean, I want, I think people really can't grasp this. You have a tech platform that can literally change the, the whole information ecosystem for seven out of 10 Americans that are using it with the click of a button and they don't. And the last thing I would say here is when we compare this to, this is the astounding thing, right? It's not just misinformation is going viral. And for example, the uh, period after the murder of George Floyd up until August, you see that these pages that repeatedly share misinformation outperform the top 100 US media outlets on Facebook, CNN, MSNBC, so forth. That's really scary too, because those pages, it's not that the misinformation sharers had more followers. The top media outlets have four to one in terms of followers, much more followers than the misinformation sharers. So So you are a global organization, and of course, you work with people in multiple different circumstances with regard to what governments they're underneath. In this report, you're calling for more government action. Um, You have some very specific recommendations. You call for a kind of, uh, I don't want to say a czar, but a kind of envoy to be appointed to look at disinformation uh, as a national problem. You encourage more effort with the EU. But one of the criticisms that I see of, of this sort of thing is that you're inviting government to essentially take more of an active role in the information ecosystem. And the fear, of course, is that doesn't that potentially put people in harm's way in nations where they can't necessarily trust their government? How do you answer that? Is there a sort of difference in the way you think about the United States versus other nations that you operate in? What is it you're looking for? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's an excellent question. And what we're looking for is essentially that democracies regulate the harms caused by social media platforms. And the the best example I can give to this is when you look at the kind of environmental protection agency, um, 
you you see a clear harm, environmental harm. We saw that it was destroying societies and communities, and an agency was created with very restricted kind of but clear responsibilities in terms of how to protect people's health. They can audit companies. They can set certain standards. And what we see kind of the reason we call for President Biden to appoint a kind of strong individual within the National Security Council to deal with and investigate the issue of disinformation is we never want governments to be deciding what information is okay or not okay. But we want someone, and we think democracy is our best place, to hold social media platforms accountable for the harms caused mainly by their algorithms. So the government should never be saying this post is okay, this post is not okay. But the government's democracies should definitely be saying, Facebook, your algorithm should not be amplifying disinformation and making you know authoritative news sources lose money and shutting down journalism. That's not a fair use of algorithms if we want a safe and healthy and equal society. And the one point I will say is there's all this fear of kind of the role governments can play in censoring speech. And they do. I, you know, I'm from the Middle East. I see how governments can essentially censor speech and silence people. But I also think we need to look at how social media platforms, by allowing censorship through noise, also censor individuals and silence individuals. And the goal here is to find the balance. So you put this report out you know, on the same week that Congress is about to haul Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and Sundar Pichai in, into Congress to hear about um, January 6th and extremism and disinformation on their platforms. Um, what are you hoping that uh, Congress might be able to do? And before I kind of jump into that, I'd also love to hear your opinion just on the, like, on the side in terms of like regulation and how you think it should move forward or shouldn't, you know? I actually agree very much with you. It's, this is not a matter of speech. It's a matter of uh, amplification and recommendation, furtherance of dangerous ideas and the, the affordances and the algorithms on these sites that essentially are used for that purpose. It's not so much about the units of speech to me. Donald Trump is the person who is responsible for the big lie, you know, he is the primary voice from which all else emanated. Um, you know, the, the units of speech that traveled from him into his many acolytes and, and political supporters, you know, we, we can see that very plainly. You know, he incited January 6th. Facebook did not incite January 6th, but Facebook played a massive role <laughs> in taking that information, amplifying it connecting it to individuals, connecting it to individuals in a context that made them more likely to believe it. And, you know, I, I think we have to look at these things. I, I, your, your recommendations to me are, are spot on. Um, I see things very plainly, but I do also see this sort of just attack that's going on right now, both from the left and also from the right around speech. And aren't you liberals just um, calling for government intervention and censorship and, you know, inviting government and in, into this situation in a way that's going to just ultimately, you know, backfire on everybody. I, I don't think that's what you're asking for. No, it isn't. And I, 
I mean, I would love, honestly, especially, I think regulation is coming, whether we like it or not. And getting good regulation is going to require societal deliberation, kind of like what we're beginning to have now. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to have more of these conversations, spending hours thinking about the details to get it right. But I think anyone claiming that we shouldn't be moving to regulate these big tech platforms, it's essentially, they're saying that they accept the totalitarian rule of Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and Sundar Pichai on everything we say, because they're the individuals deciding. It's not a freer marketplace of ideas right now. It's Zuckerberg's marketplace of ideas. And so I, I kind of never got that argument of like, we're inviting governments to get involved um, unless, unless their idea is that they trust someone like Mark Zuckerberg more than they would trust any elected official. And I don't see why that should be the case, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I guess ideally, you know, democracies would be the engines of oversight. But, you know, even even folks uh, who watch these hearings very closely will tell you, you know, they they don't quite answer the questions. They never uh, offer up the evidence that's requested of them. And they just sort of wait it out. They wait the cycles out. Right. Congress doesn't have the resources to go up against the lawyers for these firms. It's tough. Yeah, I, I totally agree that it's tough. Um, but I think we can we can push it the other way. Like it's going it's going to be a struggle. But you know we I think we're all in this together. And I think we I think the trauma caused by the the last four years, at least in the U.S. Um, but for other communities, if you look at the Rohingya and other, that's one of the things that gives me hope is we do see a movement growing across the globe of people who want to solve this issue. And I think eventually. You know, the arc of the moral universe is long, as they say, but it bends towards justice. And I think we can win this battle here. One thing that you do suggest is that if lawmakers do move forward with a 9-11 style commission, that they should not just focus the investigation on what happened at Capitol Hill, but also on the social media companies. I have also advocated exactly that. But right now it sort of feels to me like the prospects of a commission are fairly dim. Um, I don't know if that's the take you have as well at the moment, if you're you know, aware of any more conversations around that or what you might expect of other congressional investigations. Yeah, that is, I mean, we, we were hearing the same thing that you were hearing, which were that the chances of this were low. I have to say after our report, we, we briefed about 17 different offices, congressional offices, and the, the level of energy seems to be changing towards wanting some sort of investigation. And so I think it's, you know, I think there are certain members of Congress and, and I can't share names now, but who want to push in this direction. And my sense is there's still a possibility. Hopefully one of the questions that we are pushing to be asked at the hearing, and I know a bunch of experts, including yourself, have pushed similar questions, but it's about directly asking Facebook and the companies if they would allow an independent audit or investigation into their role. And I think if that question is asked and the platforms don't provide a clear answer, it may kind of create more excitement, but it doesn't make sense. It's, it's essentially like, I agree that, you know, President Trump and other actors around him were the people that pushed the big lie. But, you know, oftentimes when you're doing a criminal investigation, you don't just look at who committed the murder. You also look at who sold them the gun and, you know, all, all the kind of networks around that. And in this case, I think Congress would be remiss to just focus on President Trump and not focus on how he was empowered 
And the reason I say that, Justin, is President Trump um, is not going to be an outlier. He has shown that a certain form of politics is successful and that using tools like Facebook and Twitter can achieve huge gains. And so others who are potentially much smarter than him, much more effective than him, will seek to use the same tools in the same ways and even better. And that's why it's, it's responsible. It's the only responsible thing to do is to investigate how these tools were used on this front. Yeah. And the 9-11 Commission, you know, looked at a, a range of, of questions around how our, you know, civilian uh, travel infrastructure was was turned against us. Uh you know, questions around everything from building safety through to uh, immigration law. Uh, you know, that was a, a sort of broad uh, perspective on all the aspects that sort of came together into that attack. Um, you know, I think a commission on January 6th could similarly look at how our social media infrastructure was used against us um, in, in this way or used against democracy in this way. So, um, I agree. I, and I hope that even if a commission doesn't happen, that there'll be uh, a substantial congressional investigation that will get at some of those questions. Are there any, I guess, final details from the report that you um, have found that people are responding to or that are stuck in your mind is most important? Um, yeah. And, and actually, just to before I move to that, to reaffirm a point that you just said, um, and I, I don't want to sound um, too extreme on this front, but I actually think that if social media platforms are not included in any investigation around what happened on January 6th, um, that could be a sign that the investigation is not about finding deeper solutions to heal America and fix democracy, but it's only a political stunt. Um, because if, if we want to get to the root of what's creating this polarization, what caused that violence, um, and to prevent it from happening again, like you said with 9-11, you have to look at all the different pieces of the puzzle. And in this case, I would say social media platforms were a central piece of the puzzle. So moving from that to um, the question you just asked, I mean, there's, there's a lot of details over the last 15 months and that we found and put in the report that we're not emphasizing. But, you know, one, one is, for example, ads. Facebook made a big deal about how it was going to stop misinformation ad, you know, in, in ads. And yet we found a lot of that. Another example is Facebook's AI. Um, and there's been a lot of controversy, as you know, around Facebook's AI recently. But Facebook says, you know, 98% it always uses these big numbers. When we did a just random sample, we found that the AI was 42% uh, ineffective in catching clones of exact pieces of misinformation. And so I think just another piece that for someone who reads the full report, something a big picture comes, which is that we should never trust Facebook um, essentially grading its own homework. What it says about its AI is, is kind of seems like they're not fully honest. What they say about their policies in terms of stopping misinformation and ads seems dishonest. And the report's goal is to say, allow, you know, I, I would even say that the report is very conservative. Like, honestly, we, we downplayed some numbers. We, we kept them accurate, but we used the kind of lowest estimates instead of the kind of higher estimates of the harm caused by Facebook. And I think the problem is just much larger and their failure is much larger than any one civil society organization can measure. Thank you. 
No, thank you. That's it for this week's show. I hope you will send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at Tech Policy Press or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to Romy Geller, Brian Jones, our guests, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.